Before you get started with this edition of the Books Podcast, we want to point you in the direction of our sponsor, Squarespace. For everything you need to set your website apart, head to squarespace.com guardian to get 10% off your first purchase. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Books Podcast. I'm Claire Armistead. Never one for giving us tales of the expected, Ian McEwan has surpassed himself once more. Many writers have riffed on the story of Hamlet, but none, to my knowledge, have viewed it from the perspective of a fetus. With Elsinore transported to London's prosperous St John's Wood, Gertrude as the wine-quaffing mother-to-be Trudy, and Claudius transformed into Claude, an insufferable bore capable only of speaking in clichés. In a leisurely hour and a half, McEwan considers screenwriting, the necessary art of hesitation, the risks of working for Hollywood, the challenges of finding a voice for an unborn character, and Brexit. My narrator will be irked to be born in He's definitely a Remainer, isn't he? Definitely uh, not counterintuitively, but yeah. Brexiting the womb, mm. yes. Yeah. <laughs> we join them at a Guardian live event at the Royal Geographical Society in London as Mark Lawson sets out the rather complicated scenario. A male fetus in the third trimester overhears his um, mother plotting with his uncle to kill his father. If that narrative seems familiar in any way, um, the mother is called Trudy, which perhaps she was called Gertrude at birth, and uh, the uncle is called Claude, which may or may not be short for Claudius. It gets more complicated after that, and it it varies, it it diverts from the story um, at various points. But if we start with that before you read, did you... um, it is a very unusual form of narration. D- did you go into the story fetus first, as it were? <laughs> Thank you. Well done. Uh, <laughs> I did, actually. I was at an extremely boring meeting, and I had to arrange my face into an expression of alert delight. And so I set off daydreaming, and to my pleasure, I suddenly had a first sentence. Uh, out of nowhere, which has more or less survived intact. So here I am upside down in a woman. And I took note of that, sat on it for a month or two, because I think hesitation is the crucial element of all creativity. Uh, And about the same time, I was reading, as I often do, Hamlet. I mean, I often dip back into various Shakespeare plays just because it seems refreshing to go to the source or the to the looming figure that, uh, whose shadow uh, falls across, I think, all writers in English, whether they like it or not, or whether they even know it or not. If you're either a bit down about the whole prospect of writing anything, uh, half an hour of random pages from a Shakespeare play you like uh, is very, very heartening. It restores optimism in the project. And these two got instantly caught up with each other. And I thought, well, here's a plot. Um, why not plagiarise it? I won't be the first to <laughs> write a novel based on Hamlet. Since I've published this, lots of knowing reviewers have produced laundry lists of novels narrated by uh, fetuses. <laughs> I never claimed any originality in that, uh, but I didn't know about them. So there it began. Um, once you have these characters in this dance, uh, and once you have began to entertain yourself with the curious paradoxical 
liberation that comes with restricting your narrator, then you're set free. I mean, you, you can have fun. And among the decisions you've made, and there are a couple of plot spoilers of Hamlet in this question, so if you're still waiting to find out what happens in Hamlet, just try not to listen to this bit. But um, uh, Hamlet famously doesn't get to England, um, whereas in this case, he does. But then Denmark has a rather nice presence in that the funeral baked meats or something similar, um, a meal eaten uh, in a funeral atmosphere, comes from a Danish takeaway delicatessen, which yeah. they've, they've got on some kind of app, I suspect. Is there such a thing? I think so, yeah. Uh, I hope so, because yeah. Danish open sandwiches are lovely. My narrator does speculate. Uh, he knows where he's about to be born in the less than United Kingdom, but it's not his first choice. He doesn't know the result of the referendum, is no. that because of publication dates? <laughs> he was conceived, as it were, before mm. the referendum was hugely mm. on our minds. He does rather wish for palmy Norway. I, sh I could have written Denmark, but I thought, why not? And since Carlo Vejnalskard is with us tonight, Palmy Norway should be the first destination on account of its giant sovereign fund. He might have preferred France or Italy, but he's got the less than United Kingdom. That's where he must be. The great thing about leaning heavily on someone else's plot is, you're, I mean, you are then free to just take whatever digression you want. Mm. And it's quite a loose, a, a very loose adaptation of Hamlet, which is one of the pleasures of it. But Claude, out of Claudius, Trudy, out of Gertrude, we can see old Hamlet, though, is called John Cairncross, the name of the fifth man in the Cambridge spy ring. Is that significant? No. Uh, <laughs> uh, this is partly a novel about the self, and one of the great celebrators of the self is a barely regarded writer contemporary of Shakespeare's, who was completely under the spell of Montaigne. I don't know if his book is still in print. It's a collection of essays rather like Montaigne's, all about the self, and he was called John Cairncross. And I thought, he deserves to be pushed into the light a bit. If, um, ah, you see, that's my ignorance. I'm waiting for him, the Cambridge spy plot, to come in. We, we know that Shakespeare read Montaigne, because mm. we can see in, in Hamlet, actually, echoes of, of Montaigne's essays and they were widely translated. And it's pretty certain that Cancross read Montaigne and then thought he'd do his own. He's nowhere near as good as Montaigne, by the way. Mm. And the essays are a little dull. But still, writing about the self was a rather new thing. And I think Cancross deserves a little place in the sun. And although I'd completely you... forgotten, by the way, about Cancross the spy. Ah, oh, right. Me, uh, I'd forgotten that. And although your work has, across four decades now, has changed um, a great deal and gone in many directions since I paid £1.25 for that... You were robbed. ...paperback at First Love, Last <laughs> Rites, um, it struck me that there is, a, there is a link between Nutshell and the early short stories in yeah. that, um, as a technical exercise, because in the early short stories you have a narrator who's an ape, you have narrators who are psychopaths of various kinds. Mm. And, this, similarly, it's a technical exercise where, um, I mean, you know this, the, as in um, of your contemporaries, Craig Rain's uh, um, Marshall Sons Postcard Home, mm. Martin Amis's um, Other People and Time's Arrow, the reader is trying to catch out the writer, thinking they're going to go wrong at some point. In yes, this, they do. In this they conceit. But you, you know do. that. Yeah, but it's fun to go wrong, mm. too. I mean, during the editing of this book, a uh, very fine editor was saying to me, how does your narrator know what it's like inside a photographic darkroom? 
And I was saying, you're asking me that. I mean, what, what about the fact that he's talking to you for 220 pages? Yeah. I mean, and is um, an expert on fine wine and poetry. Yeah. yeah, so inventing sources for all this. We live in an age of great machines. So podcasts, the World Service, Radio 4, everything has to be heard. He can't see a thing. Uh, here's, here's everything. And the more you think about it, actually, to be a fetus is to be in a very privileged position from the point of a narrative. So you're in bed with your mother and your uncle, and you hear the pillow talk. So you do have a, a quite a good angle on life. And during the sex scenes, he gets a very alarming angle on his uncle. <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, <laughs> As he says, not every, not every person knows what it's like to have your father's rival's penis inches from your face. Um, and because Claude, Claudius, is supremely boring, I mean, that's his character trait, uh, he does worry that uh, his uncle, who's very gifted in this small sphere of lovemaking and very energetic, will uh, shaft his very soft-boned skull and fill his brain with the teeming cream of his banality and become making him the son of Claude rather than the son of John Cancross. So yes, we're always looking for some new way to describe the act of love. There are very few places left to go. And when he's born, I shouldn't have said that, of course, but he is born, he, as it were, reflects that what was once a vagina is now a birth canal, and he has he's claimed it for himself. That he, his Panama Canal. His Panama Canal with its freight of genes. And he senses himself passing Claude the other way, as, as we're in memory, thereby defeating him. Very Freudian. We'll, um, well, look, we set up the reading. Um, yes. Freud. Very nicely here. So uh, one of the technical challenges, having written a soliloquy for a fetus, Ian now has to work out the voice. The voice. Of the fetus, but he's going to read from early on. We, did, we never know the name, but we're assuming John Jr., are we, as in Hamlet, in effect? Hamlet, Bill Shakespeare. Mm. Well, the voice is just the voice of your bog-standard fetus. <laughs> so here I am, upside down in a woman. Arms patiently crossed, waiting waiting and wondering who I'm in and what I'm in for. My eyes close nostalgically when I remember how I once drifted in my translucent body bag, floated dreamily in the bubble of my thoughts through my private ocean in slow motion somersaults, colliding gently against the transparent bounds of my confinement, the confiding membrane that vibrated with, even as it muffled, the voices of conspirators in a vile enterprise. That was in my careless youth. Now fully inverted, not an inch of space to myself, knees crammed against belly, my thoughts, as well as my head, are fully engaged. I've no choice. My ear is pressed all day and night against the bloody walls. I listen, make mental notes, and I'm troubled. I'm hearing pillow talk of deadly intent and I'm terrified by what awaits me and by what might draw me in. I'm immersed in abstractions, and only the proliferating relations between them create the illusion of a known world. When I hear blue, which I've never seen, I imagine some kind of mental event that's fairly close to green, 
which I've never seen. I count myself an innocent, unburdened by allegiances and obligations, a free spirit despite my meagre living room. No one to contradict me or reprimand me, no name or previous address, no religion, no debts, no enemies. My appointment diary, if it existed, notes only my forthcoming birthday. I am, or I was, despite what the geneticists are now saying, a blank slate. But a slippery, porous slate no schoolroom or cottage roof could find use for. A slate that writes upon itself as it grows by the day and becomes less blank. I count myself an innocent, but it seems I'm party to a plot. My mother, bless her unceasing, loudly squelching heart, seems to be involved. Seems, mother? No, it is. You are. You are involved. I've known from my beginning. So let me summon it, that moment of creation that arrived with my first concept. Long ago, many weeks ago, my neural groove closed upon itself to become my spine. And my many million young neurons, busy as silkworms, spun and wove from their trailing axons the gorgeous golden fabric of my first idea. A notion so simple, it partly eludes me now. Was it me? Too self-loving. Was it now? Overly dramatic. Then something antecedent to both, containing both. A single word mediated by a mental sigh or swoon of acceptance of pure being. Something like this too precious. So getting closer, my idea was to be, or if not that. <laughs> its grammatical variant is. This was my aboriginal notion, and here's the crux, is just that, in the spirit of es muss sein. The beginning of conscious life was the end of illusion, the illusion of non-being, and the eruption of the real. The triumph of realism over magic, of is over seems. My mother is involved in a plot, and therefore I am too, even if my role might be to foil it, or if I, reluctant fool, come to term too late, then to avenge it. But I don't whine in the face of good fortune. I knew from the start, when I unwrapped from its cloth of gold my gift of consciousness, that I could have arrived in a worse place in a far worse time. The generalities are already clear, against which my domestic troubles are or should be negligible. There's much to celebrate. I'll inherit a condition of modernity, hygiene, holidays, anaesthetics, reading lamps, oranges in winter, and inhabit a privileged corner of the planet, well-fed, plague-free Western Europe, ancient Europa, sclerotic, relatively kind, tormented by its ghosts, vulnerable to bullies, unsure of herself, destination of choice for unfortunate millions. My immediate neighborhood will not be palmy Norway, my first choice on account of its giant, gigantic sovereign fund and generous social provision, nor my second, Italy, on grounds of regional cuisine and sun-blessed decay, and not even my third, France, for its Pinot Noir and jaunty self-regard. <laughs> Instead, I'll inherit a less-than-united kingdom ruled by an esteemed elderly queen, where a businessman prince, famed for his good works, his elixirs, cauliflower essence to purify the blood, and unconstitutional meddling waits restively for his crown. This will be my home, and it will do. I might have emerged in North Korea, where succession is also uncontested, but freedom and food are wanting. 
I like to share a glass with my mother. You may never have experienced, or you will have forgotten, a good Burgundy, her favourite, or a good Sancerre, also her favourite, decanted through a healthy placenta. <laughs> Even before the wine arrives, tonight, a Jean-Max Roger Sancerre, and at the sound of a drawn cork, I feel it on my face like the caress of a summer breeze. I know that alcohol will lower my intelligence. It lowers everybody's intelligence. <laughs> but oh, a joyous, blushful Pinot Noir or a gooseberried Sauvignon sets me turning and tumbling across my secret sea, reeling off the walls of my castle, the bouncy castle that is my home. Or so it did when I had more space. Now I take my pleasures sedately. And by the second glass, my speculations bloom with that license whose name is poetry. My thoughts unspool in well-sprung pentameters, end-stopped and run on lines in pleasing variation. But my mother never takes a third, and it wounds me. I have to think of baby, I hear her say, as she covers her glass with a priggish hand. And that's when I have it in mind to reach for my oily cord, as one might a velvet rope in a well-staffed country house, and pull it sharply for service. What ho! Another round here for us friends. But no, she restrains herself for love of me. Now, as you heard, our, our very informed and attentive audience, when you said to be, it got a big laugh. And uh, one of the things you've done throughout the book, you've been very sparing with the text of Hamlet, but just occasionally... Uh, it's clear that at some point, perhaps in his future life, the fetus may speak some of these lines, because to be bound in a nutshell, which gives it the yes. title is there, he refers to something as too solid at one point. Um, he thinks somebody protests too much, the primrose path, the more deceived. But they're just those tiny little quotations from the original text, I had including to be or yeah. not to be. Yeah. Yes, and there's bits of Macbeth mm. uh, once we get into the murder plot. Um, I had thought uh, that Claude, who is a master of banality and cliché, would only speak in some of the three or 4,000 clichés that Shakespeare has bequeathed the language. I mean, they weren't clichés when he wrote them, but they drenched the language. But it was very difficult uh, to get him only to speak Shakespeare uh, because I had to propel this plot along and I needed him to say other things. So I abandoned that. But every now and then... Uh, I didn't go looking for them. The sentences just suggested, since I was in this space, they just would just arise. It's amazing how many I got wrong, too. Oh, you had to go uh, and track them afterwards. Yeah. Well, we were just about to go to print when uh, the actor who was reading this on to a recorded version said, uh, count myself a king of infinite space. Mm. I thought, oh, my God, I hadn't even looked it up because it's the <laughs> epigraph of the novel, and I thought I knew it well. It's like when people say, what a piece of work of a man. You know, well, yeah. It's what a piece, it's prose. Yeah. And Shakespeare's prose is, I think, a triumph. Of, uh, and Gertrude uh, Trudy is caught between these two men who, as you suggest there, they represent extremities in the use of language. So John Cairncross, her estranged husband who has uh, impregnated her, he is, a, he is a poet and a rather good one, perhaps, we may think. And Claude, as you say, only speaks in... He, he doesn't speak entirely in Shakespeare, but he speaks entirely in clichés. Every single line yeah, he says... Every single book, line is a cliché. Is a cliché of some kind. Yeah. He's also adept at 
ending his sentences with the word but, a curious and difficult uh, thing to do. And he also has this habit, um, someone who's become a very good friend who, who does marvellous work around uh, mending things, you know, electrical and plumbing things, and a master carpenter of great skill, is colossally cheerful and whistles a great deal. And I once caught him whistling the ringtone of Nokia. Mm. I thought, that I have to give to Claude. It was written by Terrega. I imagine going to a concert and hearing a cellist <laughs> play. You would not... I mean, it's ruined, completely ruined. And one of the things I liked about Claude, as you say, he is, um, it's said from early on, he's quite stupid. One of the questions is, how stupid is he? Yeah. And one of the things I liked is he, he's in the wrong play, in effect, because he, he does, most of his misquotations are from Macbeth rather than yeah. Hamlet. Yeah, he he's um, in the wrong play. If I fail, you fail, and stick our courage to the screwing whatever, he suggests yes. at one point. Yes, <laughs> he's really got that one wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing that happens in linguistic terms in the book, um, you talked about getting a different perspective from a fetus. Um, I was very struck by how certain expressions, which are cliches, are completely reclaimed by the narrator. So when he says, when I'm out and about, yes. or when he says, uh, I'm on my feet. When I'm on my feet, yeah. yeah. These all have quite different meanings. They do. Sentences yeah. now. I mean, when I'm on my feet, that's about a year. And, um, <laughs> that's when he intends to do something about his situation. And out and about would be several years, yeah, probably. I yeah, I think so. He often projects forward to his 28-year-old self, which I posit as possibly when he's at his peak fitness, and then he'd take his revenge. But like Hamlet, I mean, this is the obvious connection. Uh, Hamlet, the son of a, uh, a doer, a tough warrior, who's ruled Denmark with an iron fist, and has given birth to an intellectual who can't act because he thinks too much. So if you take that to its extremity, you can have a narrator who can't act not only because he thinks too much, because, but because he has no agency at all. Well, he can kick his mother awake mm. in the night, and then she has to turn on the world service, so he gets to be fully informed by the morning. <laughs> uh, and he, uh, like Hamlet, thinks a lot about suicide, and does try and use his um, umbilical cord to strangle himself. But that's very hard. Anyone who's tried to strangle themselves will know that the moment you cut off your common carotid, your brain fails and you lose the will to kill yourself with all the motivation. So that's very difficult too. But apart from those two things... You didn't research this, did you? Well, it's very... He has no agency. Those are the only two things I could think he could do. But except that you... Um... And drink wine, of course. Yeah, but his whole soliloquy, in effect, the, the, the underlying it is to be or not to be, yeah. in a much more fundamental sense. And he has to, Hamlet is deciding whether to die. He's deciding whether to be born. So it's an exact inversion of that. Someone sent me uh, three paragraphs from Samuel Butler's The Way of All Flesh. I'd forgotten this. I read it years ago. There's a wonderful account of what fetuses think and whether being born is the equivalent of death. That they've had this glorious life, carefree, floating about, no cares in the world, and they hear rumours, according to Butler. Some think that there is life after birth, uh, and, they're very, <laughs> and they're very devout, 
Uh, <laughs> and others are sort of existential atheists who think that that's the end of everything. Mm. Um, so I wish I'd known about that before. I might have had fun with that. Although it's, um, it's, he does think that one. He does reflect it. It passes through his mind, but rather late in the novel. He is absolutely convinced there's life after birth. He's a believer. Mm. Mm. He's also, which um, it, it ties in a number of your recent books, and this is the right place, uh, one of the right places to be talking about it, the, um, in, is your use of science in recent books, which uh, is there in uh, Saturday, well, neuroscience, um, solar, and your fetus from listening to the World Service and to podcasts, um, he's picked up a lot about science. And so he reflects particularly on the development of the self. Indeed, mm. he is self-obsessed, your He fetus. is self-obsessed. Yeah. This is a novel about the self. Mm. I don't know about science. I, I, I don't really have any interest in science. What I'm interested in is the world, and I'm curious about it, and um, science is one extremely important way of understanding. I wanted to give him a total worldview, a talkative, even loquacious fetus with an entire and intact worldview. Uh, so it would have to include a knowledge of natural selection, a decent working knowledge of the cosmos, and of uh, meiosis and cell division and mm. a bit of DNA, because that's what I thought any educated fetus um, <laughs> should have. <laughs> but he also argues with, for example, biological determinism. He gets quite yeah. angry about this. So people mm. who believe that it, he, he's very upset by this idea, uh, which has appeared in science, that the mother is at war, is battling yes. the fetus. Yes, this came out of evolutionary psychology, uh, a rather entertaining idea, completely unfalsifiable, so I don't think very scientific, uh, that mothers and their fetuses are locked in competition for resources. The mother must retain uh, some of her resources for future fetuses, whereas the fetus who's there now doesn't give a damn about future fetuses and is not, doesn't want to share... And that, it's the same with um, sibling rivalry in evolutionary psychology. I think those are interesting just-so stories, uh, but fun to play with. I mean, the idea that uh, even in the womb you're fighting your mother, even Freud didn't um, mm. think about that. But I mentioned the language. There are little um, shocks on the page for me as a reader that... He'll suddenly, when he refers to a miscarriage of justice, it was genuinely shocking to me to have a fetus using the word miscarriage. So you get those little yes. accidental contextual things, don't you? He's a sort of left of centre fetus. <laughs> uh, I don't know where he'd stand on Corbyn Owen Smith, but uh, he has quite a strong sense of social justice. He's easily, uh, he's easily indignant, and not all his views are mine. Not all his views are mine. He listens to a lot of lectures about the state of the world, and he hears one that is deeply pessimistic. Terrorism, nuclear exchange, climate change, all the usual things that depress us when we think about the state of things. But then he can conjure uh, reasons to be cheerful. Mm. You know, living longer, access to information, age of beautiful machines, and so on, and runs them in parallel. So I try to give him more or less everything I could think of uh, in terms of the world he's about to join. But that's what I meant by inverting situations, that um, it's uh, famously during um, the Cold War, uh, it was quite common some people would not have children because they said, how could you bring a child into this world? Now you have a fetus who is thinking in those terms because he's listening to the 
World Service news and thinking, in effect, how, how can you want to come out into this? But he does want to. But he he does, longs yeah. to come yeah. out. He wants to join in. One of his um, overwhelming uh, ambitions, and it's one that I have but I will never fulfill, is to read the whole book of the 21st century. The life of the human project uh, and the course of its fate, however dark, is extremely interesting. And uh, it saddens me that I'll, I'll have checked out before mid-century. I won't know how it works. And he imagines it as a history book. Mm. And he wants to be at the New Year's party, December the 31st, 2099, dancing a jig, but with the full knowledge of the, mm. of the story. He'll be 85 on, on that party. And then he'll know what I won't. So I've sent him, as it were into this future. But also, it's a very striking thought there, that anyone who has a child or a grandchild yeah, now, we'll see out. they can reasonably expect to yeah. see the next millennium. Yeah, and the number of 100-year-olds plus um, is now rising so at an exponential yeah, yeah. Uh, rate. So yes, any child born now, um, we're just expecting a grandchild into the family, so he or she should easily make it, you know, illness mm. or accident apart, mm. into the next round. And you mentioned him being um, a left of centre fetus. He, he has a very, and this is, um, has been a subject of long debate, he appears to have an innate sense of right and wrong. Um, he, he knows which side he's on in the um, murder plot. He has an innate, innate sense of poetic scansion. And I was much taken by an, uh, an essay by my friend James Fenton. It's called The Genius of the Trochee. Uh, which your well-read um, fetus quotes at yes, one point. Yes, uh, indeed. He quotes, in fact, a lovely Auden song, Now the leaves are falling fast, nurses' flowers will not last. Uh, Fenton writes, you know, the most extraordinary thing about this is it's missing its last weak foot. It's a beautiful form. So just as he has a... I, I, so these are the things I've given him, a sense of right and wrong, a strong sense of the genius of the trochee, not just the iamb. We miss the fact that Shakespeare wrote in trochees. It's not all iambic pentameters. The trochees are often the beautiful spring moments, uh, the turn, the twist. And it's not only never, 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 but I mean, there are endless trochees in Shakespeare that fight against the line. So, uh, and the knowledge of French vintages he has as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, that's in, not innate. He's learned oh, that he's from learned that through his mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's, in, that's learned. Mm. He's learned those tastes. Mm. But in that sense of... Um, right and wrong. We talk about him having views on a number of things. Um, he could become the first fetus to be the subject of a Twitter storm because he expresses views on the um, state of universities now and the um, tendency towards uh, victimhood and obsession with identity. Yeah, he's very indignant. I mean, because he's concerned with identity. He, he wants to go to university. He thinks he'll do physics and Gaelic. Um, but he knows that he could change his mind yet. And he's alarmed by the twist that the intellectual life has taken with no platforming and safe spaces and trigger warnings. He's very indignant about this. He thinks that people should be a little more robust and expect to go to university and hear opinions that are not their own. I can't imagine, well... I, no, I can imagine anyone disagreeing with that because <laughs> I've already experienced it. Mm. But uh, <laughs> it seems unexceptional to me. My good friend Timothy Gartnash mm. has 
written with a, another friend uh, a kind of constitution for not only for Oxford universities, but they hope that in different ways it'll be adopted by many other universities. And it really addresses people who are about to go up to university and says, don't be upset if you hear views that aren't your own when you come to university. And I see Chicago is now, mm. I've learned recently, doing the same thing. So the pushback is happening, I think. More controversially, though, your um, fetus, this arises from his, he, he works out whether he's a boy or a girl, but then he discovers from the World Service it's not that simple anymore, that there are a number of, um, <laughs> there are a number of other options. Up to 72, I think, is it? 71 on 71. Facebook, yeah. yeah. Yes, his hand brushes past this shrimp, and uh, he realises it's part of himself. And his first reaction is great disappointment that it's either or, pink or blue, because he thinks the human form, the human mind is so infinite and various and extraordinary. How disappointing that there are only two sexes. When he learns that there are loads, his first reaction is, this is definitely a cause for celebration. But he's also thinking of his mother, who's a murderess, but she identifies as an innocent, <laughs> uh, very handily. Uh, so it's that lovely phrase, identify as. So, you know, a white person could identify as a black person, one reads about. And I see that when Jermaine Greer got uh, no platformed at Warwick, there we see a very interesting collision of currents in intellectual life now, so that that wave of 70s feminists who are sort of basically essentialists in, in gender terms run up against a whole new complicated set of alignments, which I have sort of mixed feelings about. On the one hand, clearly a liberation. I remember going downstairs at the age of eight and saying to my mother, I'd really love to be a girl. So this is 1956. And my father was out of the house. Somehow I knew that this question should not... <laughs> uh, and the look of shock on her face, which communicated itself to me, when she said, get straight back into bed. <laughs> Don't ever say this again. And do not ever say to your father that you said such a thing. Whereas I don't think I wanted to change sex so much. I just thought in the playground, the boys just wanted to sort of hit each other and play football. And the girls stood around in groups talking. And I could be with them. Um, I could go in that other entrance that, you know, where they used to go in two entrances. So there's clearly, I mean, to live in a world in which your mum might say, well, darling, yes, okay. Uh, and when your dad would say, well, fine, try it out, see if you like it. There are 71 options, yeah. Yeah, it's all ahead of you, my boy. Uh, <laughs> but you can't make identity the entirety and the outer limit of your politics because you've got to think of other people on the planet. And the, what alarms me about politics on American campuses especially, but it's spreading here, is that people are not addressing climate change or income distribution or poverty, etc. They're all caught up in tiny worlds of, of the self. Even though, of course, the self is extremely important, that tiny world is, is crucial, especially when you're young. So it's an interesting mix, for me at least, of, and hearing, as I did, I think, on some TV debate, some feminists from the New Statesman being ripped into by much younger, so this is a woman in her 40s, uh, by two younger women, or that actually they weren't necessarily women, it was hard to tell. Really challenging her essentialism about um, gender. Uh, it was fascinating. Hard to know where to quite put your own sympathies. 
So ha having had the experiences you did of a digital media storm over comments that you mm. made about gender identity, mm. um, some people, after one of those, they're, they're very careful and they're very cautious. Jermaine Greer wasn't, actually. And you mm. haven't, did anyone, either the publisher or your family or friends, say maybe John Jr. should not take on this subject from within the womb? I don't have that sort of publisher, thank God. So, no, no one would ever... And you, there was never a flicker of internal censorship when you got to it? No. Uh, I mean, I did it. Twitter storms uh, are a, a whole extraordinary new experience. What, what you experience at the end of them is a sense that uh, people have not got the knack of disagreeing. So when someone hears a view that's not their own or of their own tribe, they feel that this is a mortal enemy. And in fact, that, that the ability to uh, sit in a room uh, and uh, disagree with someone without killing them, I would have thought it's one of the cornerstones of civilization. So somehow Twitter has evaded this civilized notion of disagreeing. On the whole, you don't get measured arguments about why you think someone is wrong. You get abuse and, and often obscenity or even death threats. Mm. Um, so it's an extraordinary new... Whether it will just... It's one wave that has to break and crash on the shore and we move on to something else, I think is a real possibility there. Mm. But it's quite a shocking thing to go through. I mean, you felt yeah. that, did you? Yeah, yeah you felt but, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. When it happened, you... Well... It's not quite as bad as a press storm, actually, mm. because it seems a little more abstract. I mean, I didn't read the Twitter mm. storm, so I didn't go... And you didn't have helpful friends reporting to you on um, what's being said about you online. <laughs> you do sometimes get these emails mm. when you know nothing, saying, how shocking that yeah. someone said... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't helpful, no. We're going to um, open it up to questions in a moment. One of the other impressive things for me about Nutshell is um, there's this, I think, quite artificial division between um, what some people call genre literature and other and people call literary fiction. Yeah. Um, looking at the list of your 15 novels, I mean, more than half have some kind of, in inverted commas, generic um, element that they have an aspect of crime fiction or mm. thriller. I mean, I'm thinking of The um, Innocent, I'm thinking of Saturday. I've got a whole... I've marked them, actually. What genre is that? What Saturday? Well, that has... Um, Hospital romance. But no, but it, no, it has a thriller um, element in it, doesn't it? Or at least a crime. Mm. A quite serious crime is about to happen in Saturday. That's true. At one well, point. Um, mm. Sweet Tooth uh, has espionage yeah. elements. No, that is... Enduring yeah. love, crime, Amsterdam... Um, a sort of comic thriller in a way. Well, my novels are full of people behaving badly, so they're bound to spill into some kind of genre, aren't they? Mm. Uh, I mean, if, if you're tied uh, or interested in the notion of having something happen, mm. uh, rather than just have your character stare at the wall in a kind of state of existential sublimity, then you will wander across these other patches. I'm not... I, I don't read a lot of genre fiction. I'm a great admirer of Le Carre, mm. but then I think of him as a literary novelist. I think mm. he's a great uh, raconteur of the state of England in the, uh, since the war. Mm. But what I, what I was getting at was that you take plot and narrative seriously. Mm. 
So, for example, um, there are details, and this is very vague for obvious reasons of avoiding plot spoiling, but um, there are two items of clothing which play a vital role in the book. And P.D. James, Ruth Randall, I mean, they would respect how seriously you take that. So it works as a crime plot, and that does matter to you. I think I borrowed a bit from Crime and Punishment, how important it is to be able to remember your story. Mm. It, it's quite easy to remember your story if you're telling the truth. But if you're lying, it's really hazardous. <laughs> uh, because if you're interviewed more than once, you will slip. And that sense of being on a tightrope, especially you're with someone else whose memory is not so good. Mm. So they run through all the things they've got to tell uh, the police, mm. uh, Claude and, and, and Trudy. But they're constantly getting it wrong. Part, it's not helped by being drunk either. But I, I think the great gifts the 18th and 19th century gave us in fiction were plots and characters. And the great gift of the 20th century um, was literary modernism. And marrying those, or braiding those threads, seems to me the project that I've spent 15 novels trying to achieve. I like novels to be character-led. I like a turn of events, but I also like every sentence to retain some information, as it were, uh, about how it got made or why it's made, which I think is, is what, partly what modernism gave us, and it also gave us the, the ability, and I'm thinking mostly of Joyce here, maybe Proust to some extent, of what it's like for a consciousness to lay out a consciousness mm. on the page. So we, we can't, you know, just as composers today can't wouldn't want to write like Mozart. We, there's no going back and pretending to be a 19th century novelist. Unless, of course, you're postmodernly pretending to be a 19th century mm. novelist, like John Fowles or something. Uh, that innocence is lost to us. But it's baby with the bathwater if we forget the extraordinary achievements of Flaubert and Tolstoy mm. Dickens at the same time. Baby with the bathwater, particularly appropriate. In yes, case fetus of, in the bathwater. The, the fetus. Um, and just before we open it up, it's a tribute, I think, to the fact that you, as you say, you've, you balance these two things uh, of modernism and also plot and narrative, that the most narrative and character-led form, which is uh, cinema, um, has responded. Um, on, on Chesil Beach and the Children Act are simultaneously in pre-production, I think, are they? Just by accident, they, they start shooting on more or less the same day. And I've been writing the screenplays. Um, I'm making the Children Act with Richard Eyre, and we're just at that very exciting hinge uh, when the script becomes a shooting script. And when you start bending to the needs of, of location. You suddenly find that your lines of dialogue do not get people across the space you've now hired, or, or vice versa, the space is shorter. Or you need to get out of a scene quicker, or all those little things. And every bit of the script has to be a camera angle and get subdivided in that way. And then, of course, the next stage, which is a shooting schedule in which uh, you're not going to shoot this in order, you're going to just shoot it by location. Uh, the whole thing gets scrambled. At which point, many of the 60 or 80 people working on it forget what they're doing. Mm. You know, they, they know that there's a, a scene in which someone is staring out the window. But no one can remember, except maybe the continuity person, 
and the writer, why is she staring out of the window? Because it's just part of a busy shooting schedule and there's a ticking clock of money being pouring down the drain with every minute. All that is, I find, thrilling. But also, I've talked to lots of actors about this. It's, it's equivalent to the technical challenge in writing a conceit novel, a novel that goes backwards or isn't rated yep. by an embryo, that actors all the time, just they, as you say, they shoot out of sequence. It's very they have difficult. to say, yeah. do I know this in yeah. this scene or don't I? I mean, yeah. it's, it's really quite uh, it's a difficult thing hard. to do. It really is hard. So they need to keep the, the, shooting, the linear shooting script mm. on their laps and they've got the shooting schedule mm. and they need to be looking at both mm. at six in the morning uh, mm. as they rise days to uh, be told to stand by the window. Was it at the end or the beginning that I'm standing by the window? You really got to know that. Some writers I know who. Sorry. No, no, go on. Some writers I know who've adapted their own novels. They've um, for television or film. They've discovered in the process of doing so that the plot doesn't work or there are gigantic holes. Yeah. Did, did you suffer any of that? Some of it just won't stand up to the scrutiny of a camera. Now, it's partly the novel is a lovely interior form. You get to know how people are moving around from the inside. And uh, a script is really a description. It's more like a recipe. It's not the meal itself. It's how to make it. It's just a set of instructions to all the people working on the film. And all you have is what people say and do. That's all you've got. And getting from one to the other is, is, can be quite a challenge. Things that work in a novel often look a bit feeble uh, in a in screenplay, unless you find some other means, of some, some other thing, some other element has to be invented to bring it to life. But a good example is that in, this is a plot spoiler of On Chesil Beach, but um, the woman sees an erect penis at a crucial point. Now, in a novel, you can do that without any trouble, whereas on screen, that becomes um, a big decision, doesn't it, as to what she will see. Big is right. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah, well, my job is simply to write the scene and um, there'll be a closed set and the actors have to, mm. and the director and the director of photography will work it out. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, on that tantalising note, if we could bring the lights up and then we will take questions from the audience. Now, we've got microphones down here and up there. Um, so we can get as many questions stacked up and ready to go, like at Heathrow. Just if you wave for a microphone when somebody's answering, we'll try to get as many in as possible. Yes. I seem to recall when the Children Act was launched, possibly it was an interview with The Guardian, that you said that um, that particular book would be the last novel that you would write. Um, that in future you write short stories and novellas. Um, obviously something's changed. Is there a reason for that, or did it just happen? I don't remember saying that, but, but then I don't remember much. But, the, I mean, this is, this is a short novel. I don't know, I love, I, as a reader, I love short novels. I love to, to have that two or three or four hour experience in which the whole thing can be held in your mind which can only happen with a full-length novel uh, on rereading. It's very hard to remember the whole structure of a 500-page novel. I don't know. I, I, I don't know what, as is often said by um, philosophers of mind, uh, the mind has a mind of its own. 
you never know what you're going to do next, and it's just as uh, we don't know what we're going to dream next or even say next. So I might write another short novel. I'm writing a short story now, I think. Uh, but I like this 40 to 60,000 words at the moment is what fascinates me. And I reach for those short novels on the shelves, not because I despise long novels, but I think writing to that length forces something on writers. And, and we remember Turn of the Screw and The Heart of Darkness and Death in Venice. These, all those writers performed, I think, beautifully at that length, as well as obviously being masters of, of greater length. I think the misunderstanding that gentleman refers to, as often happens in journalism, I think he said in the interview, you never expected to write another long novel, and the word long disappeared in the um, oh. reporting of it. Oh, that's The Guardian, yeah. No, I, th- I think yeah. it was in... <laughs> I think Long was in The Guardian, but then in reporting of it, it became McEwen retires from fiction. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, But you haven't, as we've we've shown. I will. Um, I promise. I was interested, you said, um, that something that is um, significant in your novel is then becomes a bit banal in the screenplay. Is sometimes the opposite true? Something you think isn't particularly powerful becomes really good on when it's on the screen when I was writing the screenplay of On Chesil Beach I don't know if you remember the novel but most of it is about the first six hours of a marriage and the last very few pages uh, contain an entire lifetime from there till the central character in in their mid to late 60s And doing that in the screenplay demanded some new material. And I've written scenes, which we are going to use, which now, if I'd known, if I'd had access to them, now I would have put them in the novel. Uh, That's the closest I can get to it. In other words, going back into the novel gives you a chance to rewrite it. And I see... I saw opportunities that I, I missed first time round. Thank you. And you mentioned earlier John Fowles, who, as you know, used mm. to rewrite his novels across yeah. his career, but you, you would never do that as a result of the experience. No. Um, I give an occasional lecture, which I've never published because I, I like to go on giving it, uh, <laughs> about errors in fiction. I get lots of... Uh, because I've been writing, apart from... I mean, before this, up until this, I've been engaged with a form of, of realism. Once you do that, uh, you know, you're in a world in which people can say, well, that's not real, well, that's not true. So you know, uh, I've got a lovely letter from a, a lady who uh, said, you know, I've just read your early novel, The Comfort of Strangers, uh, and I noticed that two characters go on a balcony in Venice in July and they look at the night sky and their Orion is spread before them. Uh, new paragraph. You cannot see Orion in July. <laughs> um, um, possibly Scorpio would uh, <laughs> suit your novel better. And then she concluded very touchingly. She said, I'm in my late 80s and I live on the island of Sark and I spend my summer evenings in a hammock staring at the sky. Wow. So, uh, that I would change. Um, <laughs> my character, Henry Perrone, uh, gets into his, 
extremely expensive Mercedes 500 SE and uh, engages the clutch and the gear and he moves out of the, uh, the garage he has in a Meuse street. And I got, a, again, a very pleasant letter from a motoring correspondent saying, <laughs> you cannot get a, a manual uh, Mercedes 500 <laughs> uh, These kinds of cars are made for people who are too busy and rich to change gears. Um, <laughs> nor could you get an Audi or, or a 7 Series BMW. If you want a gear change, you're going to have to go down to a 320... Uh, <laughs> 320K. Uh, again, such an engaging... Uh, did, I, did you change it? Yes, I did. I, right. And I had to go all the way through. I noticed that his foot was on the clutch, you know, several times. <laughs> uh, uh, I then wrote back to him and said, I've had the same Saab for 18 years. Um, will you be my car advisor? Uh, so he did. He uh, advised me on what to buy. What did you get? Well, I made... It, it was the wrong car, actually. Uh, I, <laughs> I didn't follow his advice. I, I bought a a BMW, but it was way too fast and sporty for a 60-year-old man. And it was tiny inside. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it was a 3 Series. Not, don't ever get a 3 Series BMW. Not <laughs> uh, to 60 in sort of you know, seven, six seconds. It was crazy. I, I don't need that kind of car. But I, I do rewrite on that basis. Did you mention realism? Is there's a little warning to the reader early on. You say none of this is real, which is to not write in about what a fetus might and might not know <laughs> about wine and poetry. I can't believe I th would think readers were so stupid. No, I was trying to detach myself from the notion of magical realism. What I was saying mm. is that, that actually this is the illusion of the real. Not, uh, this is the speculation about scenes. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. From what we've heard this evening from uh, Nutshell, it sounds like it's, it's quite, a, quite a fun book to read. Um, particularly with the illusions and obviously the, the, the voice of the fetus as the narrator are, are quite sort of entertaining, entertaining ideas. Um, are, are, you, are you having more fun now with your writing than previously? <laughs> <laughs> I had fun writing this, actually. Uh, I had this twin thought. One was I'm having maybe too much fun, and if it's too much fun, I, I'm never going to get away with it. Uh, but I'm going to do it anyway and see what happens. It does have quite a lot of serious stretches, too. Um, but on the whole, it is a conceit. I mean, once you have a... I mean, I was in um, my publisher's office um, talking to Dan Franklin, my editor, and he said, what are you up to at the moment? This is about a year and a half ago, and I said, I've, uh, I'm writing a, a novel told from inside the womb and, and I'm going to enact the plot of Hamlet. And that sort of glazed look came <laughs> over him. And he said, great. Uh, and, and I knew it was time to, to change the subject. Uh, so I, I did have this sense of that I was pleasing myself, but it might just you know, be a crazy thing. I think it's an idea that can only be sustained over a short novel. I mean... It can only live within a, a fairly intense structure, and there can be no sequel. <laughs> <laughs> the, 
But your, your tonal range, you've always had that, though, in that, I mean, Graham Greene used to talk about entertainments. Um, mm. Amsterdam is an entertainment, isn't it? Really? I never um, thought it was, but anyway, yeah. Really? Yeah. But it's quite funny, yeah. Well, I mean, funny yeah. in that sense, yeah. Yeah, right. but I mean, it's a lighter... Back was, to short stories, you've always had a darkly comic... There was a sort of jeu d'esprit yeah. about it, yeah. Because Amsterdam yeah. and Atonement are incredibly different novels, totally, yes. aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Uh... And then this and Solar are, I mean, it's... Solar was more in that yeah, spirit, yeah. too. I don't like comic novels as such. Uh, I've said this before. It's rather like, you know, in childhood being held down on the floor by your strong cousins while someone tickles you. Uh, it rapidly ceases to be funny. Mm. And it just hurts. <laughs> And uh, a comic novel that's trying to tickle you on every page, I think, is, is a frightful thing to put a reader through. So I hope there would be enough tonal range here. Have you considered, or would you consider, going straight to the screenwriting bit and skipping the novel writing stage? Uh, no, I don't think screenwriting is a job for a grown person, really. You did it, though, didn't you? Uh, I mean, uh, you did do it at one point. What? For TV. Oh, I've, I've read, oh, I see. No, yeah. I thought you meant just abandon being a novelist. No, no, no. It's, ah, would right. you ever cut out the middle stage? I have written yeah. original screenplays. Yeah. I wrote one for Macaulay Culkin, mm. a bad seed movie called The Good Son, and had that flirtation with Hollywood that a lot of British writers have, thinking that they can square this circle and write something that's both profound and commercial, and then retreat with smoke coming from your fingers where you've been burned, uh, as it were, by the pool. And The Good Son was my go at that. I got sacked from it. So did the director. So did the producer. I had to fight like crazy for my sole credit. And then I thought, well, I gave it a go, you know, sort of had my Hollywood moment where you get to fly to L.A. in the front of the plane when the director doesn't return your calls and you correctly guess that you're about to be sacked. All that, you know... Where people really do behave badly, I mean, most people in the meet behave rather well, but to behave badly as in the court of Caesar Borgia or in the pages of Machiavelli's The Prince, I mean, or in a Shakespeare play, really like a villain, like Richard III, that's where <laughs> you have to go to Hollywood. And it's quite, it's quite enlivening. But your um, originals... Well, it wasn't. One of them was an adaptation, but um, Plowman's Lunch worked out pretty well, but then yeah. Solid Geometry was a front-page scandal, and wasn't it? That got banned. It's banned, yeah. yeah. After Plowman's Lunch, which was a dream, I had an idea, I, I presented it to Richard Eyre during his break when he was running a national theatre. He said, great, let's have Jonathan Price, and off we went. And between that moment and starting filming was four months Channel 4 had just started, so it was anxious to put money into these kinds of things. And uh, I thought, that'll be brilliant. I'll just write novels interspersed with screenplays. And so for the next two and a half years, I struggled as a screenwriter for Bernardo Bertolucci. And he's a sort of genius of film, but he also needs a screenwriter who's a kind of secretary. So he would say... So we were adapting... Um, a novel by Alberto Moravia called 1934. And it was conceived by us as a tragedy, as it, indeed it is, about a young man who goes to Capri to think about committing suicide. 
And hardly had I finished when Bernardo said, but let's think of it as a Lubitsch comedy. <laughs> so I started working all the way again. And then I began to see that this was not actually the job for someone who, the other half of his life, pretends to be God. And in fact, the demotion for being God as a novelist, moving your characters around as you will, deciding on the weather, and whether it's funny or not, to being this kind of corporal, I knew that this was actually not going to be a a serious proposition for me. It's slightly different when you're adapting your own stuff, which I did with John Schlesinger. We made a film of The Innocent. Oh, yeah, Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, Isabella Rossellini, and a marvellous American theatre actor, Campbell Scott. And it, it worked out quite well. Please. I just wondered which um, of your novels is your favourite or whether it's always the last one you've written. Yes. I mean, I, I, I always used to say it's the last one I wrote. Uh, then I went to someone else's author event and heard them say the same thing, and I think, and squirmed. And I, thought, I thought, what a get-out that is. Um, Some writers mm. say the next one. They either say the last one or the next yeah. one. Yeah, <laughs> get-outs, both of mm. them. Uh, so um, I've lately started saying the novel I'm least often asked about, in other words, the, the runt in my litter, which I am very fond of, and it's called Black Dogs, published in the early 90s. In fact, uh, the other night, um, someone then said, can I ask you a question about Black Dogs, which has ruined everything. <laughs> but a novel about the limits of reason and the limits of intuition and a contest between them, a familiar theme, I suppose, for me, but born out of my love of southern France and containing a, a lot of material I gathered when I was present at the fall of the Berlin Wall in, in 1989. Um, and it runs between the south of France, Berlin and London. But very few people read it, so that's the one I... Your, uh, your fetus seems to have read it because he sort of paraphrases a little bit of it at one point. Does he? Yeah. Oh. Mm. He didn't tell me he'd read it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, well, There's a, the yeah. image of the dogs coming back and... In another time, he appears to have read that bit, I thought. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, Good for... Us, it, uh, remarkably Someone well has read it, then. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because I personally find it very difficult to do, um, I wondered if you could give me any tips about how Fiction? you go about writing dialogue for dialogue. characters, which I find really hard to do. Right. Well, I think, first thing is, it is objectively hard, if that makes it any easier. <laughs> I think you just have to imagine yourself into the scene and speak it aloud. Speaking aloud as you write, I think, is, is very helpful. And when you've written a dialogue scene, close the door of your study or bedroom, wherever you work, and try it out on your own ear uh, with your own tongue. It's, it's, it's useful. Other than that, I mean, it requires you simply to enter the characters and, and do it. People don't speak generally, unless they're at reading events, um, in long paragraphs, uh, as I am now. So dialogue is usually brief, and people speak over each other, and they don't explain their situations within their dialogue. All, all those things are probably uh, too obvious to say, but we know bad dialogue when people are... There's a marvellous Tom Stoppard play, The Real Inspector Hound, when... Uh, curtain rises and it's a set and 
the phone rings and the housekeeper comes in and says, Muldoon Manor one morning in early May. (laughs) 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 And I think Stoppard there is telling us something about bad dialogue or monologue. Hi, this is a Spanish Spanish reader and big fan of of your work. Um, You were uh, still writing, working on your book when the whole Brexit process was going on. How difficult was it to concentrate in the book and not be influenced by that atmosphere? And one more question, what would the fetus would think about Brexit? <laughs> I'd finished by the time we had our plebiscite, as I prefer to call it. I think that uh, he, my uh, narrator would have been very sad about this parting, almost as sad as me. I'm still in denial about it. I still tell myself it's actually not going to happen, that the uh, triumvirate of Fox and Davies and Johnson are going to come back with a deal that will not really have satisfied the, those who wanted to leave, uh, that Parliament must surely have its say or, um, or second best, uh, a second plebiscite would have to be held. But I know that uh, hope, uh, rather than reason, uh, shapes that opinion. But I, I think the EU, for all its faults and for all its uh, democratic deficiencies and the rest, was probably historically the greatest political treaty ever devised. Um, I, think, I think it was a masterwork, actually, uh, against all the troubles of... Uh, um, So uh, I think my uh, my narrator will be irked to be born in. He's definitely a Remainer, isn't he? Definitely not counterintuitively, but yeah. Brexiting the womb. Yes. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But did you read in the paper that the um, apparently the Foreign Office says a Hotel California faction? Yes. You can check out any time you want, but you can never leave. Exactly. So um, you never know. Please. Do you ever suffer from self-doubt? <laughs> My wife is here and you can ask her. Uh, yes, indeed I do. Of course I do. All writers do. I mean, writing is almost like uh, an extenuation of doubt. Really. Of course, yeah. Uh, there's something profoundly foolish about sitting at a desk conversing with these ghosts on the basis that other people will take you seriously. And some days it goes swimmingly and other days the same pages that mildly impressed you turn to ashes. So the process of writing a novel is trying to get the balance of all those days, the good days, to defeat the, the worst days. So yeah, I, I can't imagine um, anyone who cares about fiction not feeling this always this nagging sense. And, of course, in the opening of a novel, in the first 20,000 words, you, you feel that you could leave now, you know, um, make your excuses and put it in a drawer. But there becomes a point where you can't leave because you've already spent a year and a half doing it. And even if it's bad, you feel you've, you've, made, your, you've, you've made your marriage vows and you're going to uh, worship it with your body. Uh, would you, would you ever abandon a novel now before I'm, that 20,000 I've words. learned the ways of not abandoning a novel which is 
and I said this earlier, and I'll expound upon it, but I think hesitation is a crucial part of creativity. So if I get an idea, I keep running it by myself over a period of month, months to see if it, what was good on Friday is still good the following Monday, and what was good in spring is also good in winter. And if it still seems plausible or just about okay, then I'll, I'll get going. So by then, it's unlikely. But I have stopped a few thousand words in, but not for a good while. But self-doubt, I think, is almost... It's another word for mounting a sort of sceptical reader on your shoulder who, who's a version of yourself. And as you write, it says, no, come off it. No, 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 no. So it, it has its uses. Yeah, Harold Pinter said there's a voice saying, there he goes again. When yeah, he, yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, putting on one side, there is time you spend researching and the mulling around in your head. Um, have you got a strict writing regime? Do you write every day from, you know, nine till five or whatever? Um, I write every day when I've got something to write, but I'm also quite good at not writing. Um, I'm quite a dab hand. I can, I can not write for, for a month or two, or even longer. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe in writer's block. I come back again to the word hesitation. And if you've got nothing to write, then don't write. You know, time to read. Reading's a thing. How or, long did Chisel Beach take to write? Took me just short of two years to write. A short novel. It was another novel. But then I got interested in this couple in the hotel room and I thought, this is my novel. I thought, I'd, I'd written my way in, out of one novel into another. And so uh, I had to shift course. And that took an awful lot of time. But once, once I was on track with the story of a marriage that was only a few hours old and was going to end that night or early the next morning then I think that continuous stretch was about 14 months. Which is interesting, because as you know, you've experienced it. Some of the critical suspicion which there is, and journalistic suspicion of the novella or short novel, is the idea that they're quite easy. Yeah. I think uh, the novella is, is, is very hard to do. And the reason I mentioned you know, those masterworks of the 20th century, you know, Death in Venice, Metamorphosis... Um, Turn of the Screw, etc., is because, it, because they're difficult to write, they placed great demands on Kafka and Thomas Mann. Uh, as a footnote, by the way, uh, I was in the Bodleian a couple of years ago and had a privileged uh, tour of the manuscript section. I was amazed to see and hold in my hands a, something a bit like a school exercise book, and it was the... An, entire manuscript in longhand of metamorphosis and um, as Johnson said of Shakespeare I mean he hardly blotted a line it was extraordinary I would have thought I know that there were other you know it took him a long time this is I think it's his most finished piece I don't think Kafka's a great novelist wonderful short story writer and a brilliant diary journal writer but it was very moving to... And I turned to the last page, and my German is just about good enough to see when the parents of Grigor Samsa, he's now dead, 
they think it's time for it to take a day off and they go on the tram to the end of the line and as, as their daughter stands from her seat and stretches her young limbs, their glance, the parents glance to each other, told them each what the other was thinking, that it was time to find her a husband or something like that. Uh, amazing the power of uh, a manuscript have like that. Anyway, that's a footnote. Uh, yeah, to that. Um, we've, we've got very, yes. Um, I, uh, I wanted to say that you have a wonderfully light touch when you're putting quite weighty uh, literary and political ideas into your novels. Do you have to think very hard how to do that or does it come naturally? It's amazing. I thought in my paranoia you were saying something really vicious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it turned out to be very nice. What did you think the question was? No, I'm not even going to tell no, you. Okay. That. <laughs> <laughs> put ideas in your... I cannot really answer that question. I mean, it, it, it's the question to ask. Um, you might read a novel by Michael Frayn called The Trick of It, mm. where a, a novelist is pursued by a, an academic uh, writer who wants... Every question he asks, he says, yeah, but you still haven't told me the trick of what you do. And he uh, marries her, doesn't he? And and it, yeah, well, yeah. yeah, and they still... Yeah. She can't... Yeah. No. Yeah. And he can never tell her what the trick is. And I feel... Uh, and that's a novella, actually, which I really love. Uh, I feel in the same position. I, if, I knew, if I knew how to tell you how I do what I do, then I would tell you. But I honestly, I just sit down and um, try and work as hard as I can. And that, uh, that's, uh, I think the novel is a very personal form. I think it's the most personal of all the art forms. It's very hard to write. 500 words of prose without giving away yourself. And so therefore, the novel is a, a sort of helpless expression of who you are. And trying to tell someone how it is you do what you do as opposed to someone else is a bit like saying why you are the person you, you are. Uh, you, it, well, which would take a novel, I guess. Yes, well, this will be the last one, I'm afraid, um, up there. Hi. I'm an English teacher, and some of my students, so not to ask you about your tricks, but to ask you your advice, when they're given something to write about, they really struggle. They can't, they just say, oh, I don't know, I can't think of anything. And what advice would you give sort of young people who are trying to think of ideas or how to create characters or events and things like that? Uh, I would tell them to you know, keep, keep a journal. Uh, just write down what, you, what they did every day. Those of us who have kept journals are always disappointed to come across the pages which describe dreams and things. You just want to know who you're seeing and what books you're reading and what someone said to you. Banalities, they seem like banalities on the day. A year later even, but especially ten years later, uh, they will be absolutely fascinating. But just getting kids to set down what they do what they did, what they thought, I think is the beginning of having to give shape uh, to experience. So I would, I would say do that. Thank you very much. I know there were other people who had questions, but we took as many as we possibly could. I'm afraid that is it. But anyway, we did, um, we've gone over the time already. So thank you very much to all of you, and particularly to Ian McEwen. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Ian McEwen, Mark Lawson, and the ever-valuable audience at our Guardian Live events. Next week, we're back to the studio, looking at tricks of the mind, in particular the distorting effects of drugs and trauma, with Man Booker long-listed novelist David Means and neuroscientist Mark Lewis. 
For more literary events, discussions and live events, search for Guardian Books Podcast. You can find us on the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud or on your smartphone. Just spark up your favourite podcast app. But for now, from me, Claire Armistead and my producer, Susanna Tresillian, goodbye and thanks for listening. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. To find out more about how to set your website apart, head to squarespace.com slash guardian. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.